This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, we just got featured on CastBox, so you might be one of our new listeners. Thank you so much for checking us out. And to get started, I thought I'd play one of my favorite episodes. It's an episode we did with Dave Asprey a while back, and he shows how obsession with detail can lead to remarkable discoveries. As you're listening, think about this question. Are those light bulb moments, those brilliant ideas stumbled upon or worked towards? I'd love to hear from you. So leave your answer in a comment or a review. The thing that made Bulletproof work is that when people would try it, they're like, holy crap. Like, I haven't felt like this in a long time. Pretty soon, there are big names in Hollywood and recording and in the New York Times, Rick Rubin saying, I have Bulletproof coffee for breakfast. And Ed Sheeran's talking about it on the red carpet. I just, I had this thing yesterday called a Bulletproof coffee. Have you ever had one of these? No. What, what is it? It's basically just a normal coffee with like different stuff in, but instead of milk, it's butter. So it's your body treats it like food. And I had it in the morning and then didn't eat anything all day and was up from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. And Jimmy Fallon and Shailene Woodley are talking about it on The Fallon Show. Uh, it's called Bulletproof uh, coffee. Tastes pretty good. Apparently, you burn energy slower and like longer, and you uh, you don't eat as much. Really? I didn't know any of those people. They just did it because they heard about it and they tried it, and it worked. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Dave Asprey, the creator of the revolutionary Bulletproof Coffee and founder of Bulletproof 360. What you heard just now was Dave eagerly recalling Bulletproof Coffee's rise to popularity within Hollywood and the music industry a few years after its launch. Since then, Bulletproof has become a multi-million dollar empire, with products gracing the shelves of Amazon, Walmart, and Whole Foods, to name a few. But every empire has an origin story. And Dave's begins in Roswell, New Mexico, a site renowned for its close encounters of the third kind. Something crashed in the fields of Boster Ranch, located just northwest of Roswell, New Mexico. So my mom's side of the family is from Roswell, New Mexico. She went to Goddard High School. Uh, and after my grandfather passed away, my grandmother dated the best friend of the guy who found whatever they found out in the desert. And I actually asked her, you know, hey, hey, grandma, what, uh, you know, was there any anything? And she said, well, he never said anything, but I asked him once. And he said that his friend uh, has never told a lie, like the guy who found the thing. So whoever found whatever it was thinks he found whatever he found. I have no idea whether it was a weather balloon or not. And as far as I know, I haven't met any aliens. The other side of the family is really interesting. Uh, my dad's parents um, both worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories, and my grandmother ended up getting an advanced degree in nuclear engineering. My grandfather wrote for Encyclopedia Britannica uh, under the general heading of chemistry, and he was a physical chemist. And all of my aunts and uncles are engineering kinds of people. In my family, you know, being right was was really important, you know, scientifically right. And so there's pros and cons to that. Um, on the pro side, the ability to think through things, see how things work, 
um, and and to really have access to stuff that you normally wouldn't get. I had my own computer when I was eight. And it was a computer from before DOS came out. It was something called a Capro 2 that ran CPM. It only had a command line interface. So the first thing I did was um, I hacked NASA. Oh, sorry, that was the plot of War Games. We're in. Shall we play a game? No, uh, what I mostly did was play a game called Adventure. This was the first computer game that came out on mainframes. And it was a little text game saying in to go north. And this was the precursor to every game that we play today. But what was magic about it is that you would have to picture everything. And you'd end up mapping out something that didn't exist in your mind. So you create a 3D map, but all you're really doing is you, you go north, you see a gnome, you know, he throws something at you and you catch it or whatever. But it was very limited interaction, but a lot of the cognitive and, and cerebral 3D envisioning of environments. And I think it actually changes your brain to do that. There aren't a lot of people who are in their mid to late 40s who had their own computer when they're eight. Now everyone does. So I had this early experience my whole life of just believing that you can out science, you know, anything. So there's an order to the universe, there's an order to the world that's under the surface. And it's all about systems. And it's always about this optimization thing. And then there's variances from that. And that mindset has been there for everything that I do. Where today's kids indulge in HD graphics, Dave's first virtual adventure was powered by a single command line interface. Yet it was because of this simplicity that Dave's imagination could run rampant, that the gears of his scientific mind could begin to turn. Playing adventure wasn't merely a pastime. It was his way of channeling his raging curiosity and boundless imagination. He was an active explorer, armed with the compasses of curiosity and innovation to navigate through his mental 3D rendering of a virtual world. Although Dave took on the mantle of fearless pioneer in the digital realm, reality would burst his virtual bubble. Third grade, I'm like, I'm constantly getting strep throat. Uh, it was like every month and I'd go to the doctor and they'd give me antibiotics and then I'd go to the doctor the next month. But when you are constantly in pain, like I was, and um, it, it sounds weird, but you don't know that it's not just the normal state of being. And then I played soccer for 12 or 13 years until my knees just wouldn't do it anymore. I, I was already putting on weight, but I went to the doctor and he said, oh, you have arthritis. And I just remember being stunned and thinking that's for old people. Like, how can I be old when I'm young? And then I was getting back pain. And it was just a constant present thing for me. And since it's always there, you don't really know what it is until later in my mid-20s, I started going, wait, you mean you can turn that off? You mean I don't need to carry that with me all the time? How did that affect your relationships with like your peers and the people that you were around? I had Asperger's syndromes. <laughs> I knew the names of at least three kids in each of my classes when I was young. I wasn't that sociable. I mean, I was very interested in reading. I learned to read at 18 months. 
which is awesome because I had this wealth of knowledge. I read so much. I read every sci-fi book I could get my hands on, which meant most of the library. But the problem was <laughs> you don't actually move around when you do that. So there's neurological wiring that's supposed to happen that I didn't get because frankly, if you know how to read and you're four, it's much more interesting to read than it is to go out and move around and things like that. So I was getting biotoxins that were interfering with my body's ability to make energy. So I had a ton of inflammation and a ton of fat, but it wasn't just from not moving around. Because even if I did move around, I, I played soccer. I had a Cannondale bike and I would ride 20 miles a day during the summer. It didn't matter. I was just fat. I remember when I was about 13 or 14, you know, I had you know, three ripples uh, and I was at some, uh, some swimming pool um, and I was eating an ice cream cone. Uh, and my mom was like, you shouldn't just stand there and eat that. Like, it doesn't look good. And, and I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of am fat. And that's about the time. It's about the time when you start becoming aware of your body. Before that, you're a kid and you're kind of in la la land. And it was one of those things where I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't really like it, but I didn't care that much about it either. Um, partly because I had Asperger's syndrome. I just, I wasn't that interested in being popular. To have your mom look at you and essentially say, hey, stop looking fat. That would be intensely hurtful to most kids. But it wasn't quite the same for Dave. He says it's because of his Asperger's, and that may be true. But I think this indifference is actually an indicator of something more. I think it's an attribute that contributed to future success. He could be unapologetically himself, and thus pursue the things and life that he was interested in. Initially, those interests were mostly virtual, and though his technical aptitude enabled him to feel invincible behind a computer screen, physical ailments awaited him once he logged off. Unable to troubleshoot his body, Dave shifted his focus towards what he could control, his mind. Having learned how to read at just 18 months old, knowledge, curiosity, and innovation continued to be hallmarks of his upbringing. And these would be the tools that propelled him towards entrepreneurship in college. You maybe weren't super motivated by your classes, but you were motivated entrepreneurially, right? You started the Entrepreneur Club at UCSB and even had a stint with uh, coffee t-shirts. So how did the coffee t-shirt business start? At UCSB, the only calculus two class available was at 8 a.m. I'm not a morning person. So I signed up for it. And the only way I could think of to do it was I'm going to have to start coffee again. So I discovered what a triple latte would do for me. And that was the only A I ever got in calculus was that, that semester I discovered coffee. I'm out of coffee. You're out of coffee. Out of coffee. So I loved coffee and I became as much of a coffee snob as you can be when you make $4.25 an hour scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins and you're paying your own way through college. And back then the internet was so small, it's hard to imagine this, but you could know the entire internet because it was just Usenet. It, and Usenet was basically Reddit, but it was much smaller than Reddit today. And it didn't have a web interface even at the time. It was just a, a bunch of little rooms full of text but people would organize themselves. And I went to this alt.drugs.caffeine uh, room and I learned everything about caffeine chemistry and about coffee. And we talk about frothing milk and just all these you know, early coffee hacker things. And then I said, I'm gonna make this caffeine t-shirt because I want one. When you say caffeine t-shirt, what exactly does that mean? Picture the caffeine molecule on it. 
and I said, all right, I'm going to make this T-shirt. And it says caffeine, my drug of choice, which was really inflammatory. This was, you know, the 90s when you just say no. Yeah, the war on drugs and all that. And so it was a little bit edgy, but I made this shirt and I said, hey, guys, you know, I've been a member of this community, but I have these shirts. If you want one, you can do it. And I got orders from 16 countries the first week that I put this up there. And I know for a fact, this was the first thing ever sold over the internet. Wait, just backing up to be in so many countries, like seemingly in a short amount of time, what did that feel like for you to create something and then have it bought around the world? Any entrepreneur will tell you what it feels like the first time they get a check. This is the first time I'd really had a, a real company that, that was doing that. And I was just amazed. Like, I got 100 orders for T-shirts. Like, oh, my God, th this is so good. And I was just blown away. I thought, all right, this is great. I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. But then I made what uh, well, might be a fatal mistake. Uh, the first place we ever talked about doing business on the internet was the inet-marketing list on Usenet. And a Rutgers professor had gone on and said, no one's ever going to make money on the internet. Okay. I might've had a chip on my shoulder just going to a state, uh, a state school. So I'm like, I don't know about you Ivy league guys over there, but I'm already making money on the internet. Right away, I get this email from Rosalind Resnick, who was a columnist for the Miami Herald. And she said, hey, can I interview you? I said, oh, sure. Once she interviewed me, literally, I learned how PR works because 80 other people called right away. Hey, I saw you were in there. Can I interview you too? So I'm like, oh, I'm the popular kid. Okay, I've never been the popular kid before, right? And so I had my little burst of fame because of that one comment. But after the first article came out, one of my big warnings was, guys, this is a delicate ecosystem. And if you exploit it, it'll go away. Right. Like, like there's something precious here. Why did you feel like it would go away? Well, that if everyone came into this community where people were just like talking to each other and helping each other and started trying to commercially exploit each other, that the community would change and it wouldn't be special. But yeah, I'm absolutely certain that they're like, oh, I can exploit this environment, even though I was in Entrepreneur Magazine wearing a T-shirt I made for the article photo that said, if you exploit it, it's gone. And I was like, guys, like, let's not, you know, clot this place up and look at where we are now. You were making money on the Internet before anyone else. You had like 40 to 50 national publications and you were profiled in Entrepreneur Magazine from this one a little business. And it seems like from what I, I like I heard before, there was a little bit of an ego developing. Like, did this just like, all right, I know what I'm doing. I'm the smartest. I can like, what, what was your perception of yourself after all that very quick success? I already had a big ego. And part of the way that I, I was raised is like, you, you, it's your job to know everything. In fact, knowing everything is going to earn you respect and admiration and kind of increase your status in the family. What did I do? I said, I don't need any help. I'll do it all by myself. So for me, I was like, I'm getting really tired of putting t-shirts in, in boxes and sending them out to people. And it's starting to affect my studies. I'm just gonna stop doing it. 
I, I've had my moment of fame and what I'd always tell myself, you know, when I'm, when I'm famous, I'll be, you know, I'll be happy. And it turns out fame doesn't make you happy at all. It's just work. And then, you know, money, I didn't make much money back then, um, but it was, uh, it was a, a time where all I had to do literally was just go, go down the street. I lived 80 miles from Silicon Valley and just go there and knock on a few doors. And I could have done it if only I was willing to ask for help and receive help. And that's one thing a lot of young entrepreneurs don't understand is how much people are willing to help you if you just ask and listen. There's truth in the saying, accepting help is its own kind of strength. Too often, we let our egos convince us that asking for help is a sign of failure or weakness, when really it's the key to fueling progress. Dave's first go at entrepreneurship had racked up some pretty successful results, but putting on a one-man show only makes the expanse of the stage seem that much wider. He had placed himself securely in the limelight by selling caffeine t-shirts, but it now had become a tiresome distraction that tainted his perception of what it meant to be the popular kid. He thought it would make him happy, but it didn't. He knew that fame just wasn't it for him. He'd have to search deeper. And to rub a little more salt into his wound of existential uncertainty, his childhood afflictions had come to wreak havoc once more. I want to come back to the medical issues because you had three knee surgeries at 22. Did this like bring up the the things that you were dealing with at 14, those initial thoughts of like mortality or intense awareness of aging? How did you look at that time when you were 22? I just knew that it hurt all the time. I figured, oh, this is an injury from soccer. And I knew that I had a hard time walking to class. Like I would always skateboard or ride a bike uh, because it was less steps. Doing that surgery though, it's really hard, especially if you go back 30 years. It was a little bit more barbaric. I can have a three inch scar in my knee and they put a screw in my knee in one of the surgeries. And I got to the point where after the second surgery, I'm like, I am never going to have this happen again. Like the most important thing is to not have that kind of pain anymore. So I really just got heavy into working out. I'm like, I'm going to lose this weight. Uh, I'm going to you know, really just do everything possible to be strong. And first time I did anything slightly risky to, to my knee, uh, which was play laser tag of all the geeky things. I blew my ACL the first time I went out. And I was just so discouraged, like, what the heck? You know, I just, I just want to be out of pain, right? And I'd like to be able to walk around. That was something that didn't make me think about being old, but it made me think about being weak, right? And I, I, no one wants to be weak. Like, that's one of the worst things, especially if you're a guy, especially if you're a guy from that time, you know, you don't want to show up and just not be strong. So it was a big concern for me to the point that when I went back to the doctor for the third surgery, my insurance wasn't going to cover it. And it was like five grand and I didn't have five grand. And so I said, look, I can take a semester off of school and I'll just work and I'll pay for this. And the doctor's like, tell you what, I'm going to do this one for free. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm still grateful for that to this day because I would have like put my studies on hold just to be able to walk. The pain was already tough to deal with, but the financial burden was too much. I think the doctor, seeing this kid just suffering, wanted to lift at least some stress off his shoulders. Life after college can seem pretty daunting, but there was no denying that the stretch of road beyond him seemed much more inviting than the one he was leaving. Dave could finally build on his early success selling t-shirts on the internet and re-embark on his quest to start a business in Silicon Valley. 
I took my first class at the University of California, Santa Cruz, like in a, a web engineering class. And I asked my instructor, I said, hey, can you look at my resume? And he goes, your resume is crap. It says you do everything. He said, why don't you just put internet on there? So I took my resume and I deleted everything that didn't say internet. And I put it out there and I got a couple of phone calls. The first one was from a company called 3Com, which was one of the two dominant networking companies. And all of a sudden I'm actually on Highway 237. I'm in Silicon Valley and I have a real job. When you first join like the real companies, today they'd be like getting a job at Google or Facebook or something like that. And you're just so excited because you're finally going to see how it all works. And after about a year and a half of that, I took a couple more courses. They asked me to start teaching courses. Uh, and I eventually ran the program where we would teach Silicon Valley engineers how to build the internet instead of how to build old networks. And at that point, I put my resume out there again and I got two offers. One was to be the lead architect to build a web interface for PeopleSoft. The other one was to be a founder of the consulting group at Exodus Communications, the company that invented web hosting. I went to Exodus because when you walk into your data centers for the first time, it's 100,000 square feet and the whole building's humming with fans and there's cold air everywhere and there's just racks and racks and racks of servers. The stuff you'd see in movies today, but they didn't exist back then because this is the company that was building them. And within a couple of years, that little part of the business where it was me and two other guys, we started this thing, we got it to $100 million a quarter in revenue. And so scaling that, finding all those unique hacks and tricks, when did you receive a payout? And what were the events leading up to that? I had a bunch of stock options. In fact, I only had 3,000 shares of stock. But when the stock splits three times on the NASDAQ in one year, I think we split a total of six times. The company was worth $36 billion at its cap. Um, that 3,000 shares of stock was worth $6 million. And I had invested most of it. The only problem was that one day I got tired of doing consulting services and I walked into the VP of strategies office and I said, I want to work for you because I think I should be doing company strategy because I know how all this stuff works. And to my surprise, he said, great, you're hired. And all of a sudden I wasn't doing consulting on the ground. I was sitting in board meetings and I was attending some of the senior leadership meetings and suggesting new products. And like it was so incredibly cool. The problem is I was in charge of looking at every acquisition. We must have bought 20 something companies. And because I had foreknowledge of acquisitions, I was blocked out. I wasn't allowed to trade stock as it would have been insider trading. So I watched my stock that was worth $85 a share go down to $5 a share when it was illegal for me to trade it. All I had to do was quit. I could have sold all my stock and walked away a multimillionaire at 26. Losing your fortune or losing all of your savings even is the same level of stress as losing a family member. I mean, I was devastated. What did you think of your like cognitive function at, at this point? Because like losing $6 million and then thinking like you, you've built up this ego and this idea of what your brain could do and what you could achieve yourself and then losing all of that seemingly something that could have been prevented like i imagine you would reevaluate how your brain was actually working maybe i knew my brain wasn't working very well i could feel it i'd sit in meetings 
And sometimes at the end of the meeting, I wouldn't have any idea what was going on. Or I'd sit in a meeting that was really fascinating and I couldn't keep my eyes open no matter what I did. I could bite my cheek until it bleed. I like pinch my leg, you know, and just try and like willpower through it. But when you're in a car and the accelerator's pressed all the way to the floor and the car's slowing down, you can press harder on the accelerator, but nothing happens. And that's how my brain felt every day. So my career is going crazy and I'm just kind of faking it. I'm like, man, I, I don't know if I can really do this. All my labs, everything said I was fine, but I was just like worried that I don't know if I'm gonna be able to keep putting bread on the table because my brain is not reliable the way it should have been. So a cognitive function thing was scary. It was one of those things where, look, if my body's not working, fine, you know, I can limp around or something. But if your brain doesn't work and you're creating the future, at least as far as you see it, with your brain, and you're making your living with your brain and your brain becomes unreliable, that is terrifying. I feel like where these feelings came to like a unbearable point was at Wharton. Would that be correct or no? Yeah, it's true. So right as the dot-com bubble burst, I had had the great fortune of working uh, for someone who worked for one of the big consulting firms, a guy who to this day runs the Boys and Girls Club in, uh, in East Palo Alto. He sat me down and said, here's why you go to business school. And he encouraged me to know what to do. So I worked while getting my MBA at the same time. And... I remember sitting there and I would take a test and so I'd get 100% on the first question, 50% on the second question, 20% on the third question. After that, it was just like random doodles. And what's going on, I found out that the blood flow to my prefrontal cortex, where you think, it was actually shutting down when I was taking tests. And this is a classical ADD phenomena. I had no idea this was going on, but at the time, I managed to even get extra time to take tests because I, I met the clinical definitions for ADHD. And if I hadn't had that, I don't think I would have graduated. Dave barely scraped by as he weathered the storm that raged over every level of his existence. His cognitive dysfunction was like a violent gust that battered his ship and pushed him even further out to sea. And just as you can't control a storm, you can't control what obstacles life throws your way. However, you can control what tools you bring on your march forward. And for Dave, that meant working to understand how to mold his mind and his body for the better. I guess I want to delve more into that transition into your own research of your body. I started my first low-carb diet when I was finishing my undergrad. So I was about 24, maybe. I was at a coffee shop and I had really been trying to lose weight. Uh, I, I just spent huge amounts of time, 18 months, working out 90 minutes a day, six days a week, and it just didn't work. I never lost weight when I did that. I just I gained some muscle, um, but I was still very fat. Clearly something wasn't quite right. And then I was at a coffee shop and they had some bodybuilding magazine um, up in Iraq. So I picked it up and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And the guy's like, you know, sugar makes you fat. So I, I cut weed out of my diet accidentally and suddenly my brain fog went away and I was a lot less angry and less reactive. And I lost 50 pounds in three months. It was amazing. Right, but then the other 50 pounds I had to lose, it stuck around for 10 years. And that was why I ended up coming up with the Bulletproof Diet and all this stuff because it's not as simple as just eat less calories. In fact, usually that doesn't work. And you experiment to see what's going to work, what's not going to work. But the gift for me was that my cognitive function was so bad for a lot of this time. When you can add 1% to 
and you're only at 5%, you're like, oh my God. I felt it because relatively it's a 20% kick. So I became able to sense shifts in energy production. So that's one of the reasons I was able to ferret out all the different aspects of Bulletproof Coffee because I feel the difference in my biology when I can turn it up or turn it down. Were you documenting all these experiments that you were doing? So in the margins of my notebooks, anytime I felt like I had focused or that I felt like a zombie, I would write it down. And so I built a conscious awareness of my mental state and I would constantly go, how am I doing now? How am I doing now? I had built this practice of, of noticing how dialed in I was. And one of the things I remember discovering is my favorite lunch uh, was I would go and I would eat at this Greek restaurant and had this ranch dressing that went on the Euro sandwiches. Ranch dressing is bad fats and MSG and sugar. There's nothing else in there. MSG is a major trigger of brain fog and food cravings. The afternoons when I would eat that, I was just a zombie. Right, so I started playing around with it. Like, do I need to get the salad with ranch dressing versus the pita bread? You know, what, what's going on here? And eventually I'm like, ranch dressing is kryptonite for me. So eventually I would know what made me weak. And when I felt myself starting to decline, I would know the countermeasures to take. It made a big difference because suddenly I had a tool set to deal with. Eventually, that, that's what led to the birth of Bulletproof. The blog, the language I use is that I believe that everyone actually wants to be better. For me, I took those things and it was like, whoa, I was focused all day long. What's going on here? And that really set me on, on a great path. And I went to Wharton and I was doing those, but it still wasn't quite enough. And that was why I read uh, Daniel Amen's first book, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. Daniel Amen at the time was one of the first people to look at metabolic activity in different parts of the brain to determine what was going on. And he was just pilloried by his peers for this. When I did his test with the radioactive sugar to look at my brain, I'm like, oh my God, I have a hardware problem. I don't have a moral problem. Like if it's an inherent weakness, lack of trying or not being good enough, which is what I thought it was, I'm like, I got no blood flow. I can hack that. All of a sudden, all the judgment and shame that I had about being weak was gone. So I'm like, oh, this is something I can fix, right? And this is a core part of the information that I share with the world now is that it is hackable or it is repairable if you don't like the word hack. But a lot of what you think is you is your environment. It is your hardware. As Dave tells us about how he developed a hyper-awareness of his own state of being, we see his long-standing inclination shine through. His desire to just out-science everything. His obsession with detail allowed him to turn something as menial as ranch dressing into a revelation. Seeing his body as a piece of hardware allowed him to take an objective approach to dieting, allowing him to heighten his cognitive function and to better understand the worth of what he was doing not just himself, but for others as well. Having established some healthy momentum, Dave was ready to push his limits even further, ultimately deciding to leave the country. One of my classmates at Wharton, Jane, had flown from Shanghai to San Francisco every two weeks for two years to get her degree. And all of us were like, that's incredible. So we decided we were all going to fly out to Shanghai to go meet her. And since I had just um, ended a, a multi-year relationship, I just graduated. And I traveled around China a little bit, um, went to Cambodia and Thailand and places like that. And then I went to Nepal. 
serendipity is a part of travel. So I'm like, I don't really know where I'm going, Kathmandu. I don't know where I'm going to stay. I just got a ticket there. So I land in Kathmandu, and at that time I figured out the best travelers on earth are um, Israelis. And the way I know this is because there were a few on my flight, and they were telling me all about this. So I would just follow them. So I went with them to the the guest house that was you know the best deal that was nice. And literally, you just walk around and look at stuff. And I found a flyer that said, "Oh, there's this monastery." I you know arranged to go there and did the the ten day ten day retreat there, which was uh, which was really cool. Allowing serendipity was kind of important because in the back of my mind, on my bucket list was going to Mount Kailash, and then uh, one of the people in the meditation class was like, "Hey, I w- I'm going to go there next." I'm like, "Hey, can I go too?" And she, she was like, "That's great because you have to have two people on a visa, and I needed to find someone, so we just decided we'd go." It was literally just you know allowing good stuff to happen to you instead of going out and planning and forcing it. What did that trip to Mount Kailash look like? We put up a couple of flyers um, at guest houses saying, hey, we're looking for two more people who will rent a four-wheel drive with us and take this five-day drive to go out there. Magically, uh, a couple of people showed up. So this kind of ragtag, people don't know each other, like squished together in the back of a car. And at the time, you'd hire a car and a driver, but you had to also have an interpreter. And so we spent five days bouncing on dirt roads, uh, just kind of cutting almost cross country some of the time, driving to the middle of nowhere from Western Tibet to Eastern Tibet. You could see sometimes for, for it felt like a hundred miles, just um, lichen and rocks and just amazing geological formations. And it looks like another planet. And you go to these little villages and the villages are made of mud walls. It reminded me of what you can see in Santa Fe and traditional architecture from, you know, the Anasazi or somebody. And uh, you go there and the people were, were still wearing you know, the, the native garb that, that you'd expect them to be wearing. And it, it was, you know, sleeping in, in shared bunk houses on beds that were five feet long. And I'm 6'4", so I got really used to sleeping with my feet hanging off the bottom of the bed. Very, very rustic. There's one restaurant in town and they cook everything over yak dung kind of thing. I'm mean, as remote and, and rugged as you can get. It was, you know, kerosene lanterns and just a very, very different world. Going from like the incredibly fast-paced Silicon Valley life that you had been living to this like rustic, rural, simple life, like what was going through your mind I actually shopped around before I went and I bought what's probably the first sub three pound laptop that you could buy back then. I'm like, I'll still do my email. And my plan was to go to the internet cafes that were there. And then when no one was looking, steal ethernet from the back of one of their computers, plug it into my computer, download all my email. And then I could just use my laptop when I wasn't at an internet cafe. Well, I was getting so much spam on my email that the internet in Tibet back then was so slow. I, I had more spam coming in than I could download at one time. So my laptop was useless. So I carried three pounds of dead weight with me everywhere for like months, for three months uh, throughout, uh, throughout Southeast Asia. So for the first month, it was like stress that I didn't get email because this idea of being addicted to your email, everyone is now because we have our phones. But there was a time where if 
the internet went down, which was actually common, like your ISP would fail or whatever, I would get like really stressed. Like if I couldn't get to my email, I was like, oh my God, something's gonna happen, I'm not gonna know it. In that kind of a stress, so I still had that, especially coming out of Silicon Valley where you're hyper-connected. But after a month of just realizing that it, there was just nothing to be done about it, then I just kind of chilled. So it wasn't that I, oh, I'm gonna go on a you know, technology diet. I was on a forced technology diet, but it was a really good thing because you, know, you go to sleep when it's dark because you got nothing else to do. It, it was that kind of a, a situation uh, where literally all you could do is write in your journal with a flashlight if you wanted to, or you could read whatever book you bought at some weird bookstore in Kathmandu. And that was that, or you talk to people and drink tea. So that's what I did. And it was really good for me. When we finally got to Mount Kailash, there was only one guest house open. So normally during tour season, you walk a mile, it's a 26 mile course around the mountain and you go over several different very high altitude things. And I was feeling really wrecked that first day, like really feeling terrible, right? And then the, the guest house proprietor uh, just gave me some yak butter tea and I, and I drank this and five minutes later, it wasn't like a small swing. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not hungry. I'm not nauseous. I don't have a headache. Like I have enough energy, I could dance. This is such a dramatic swing. How is this even possible? And it was because I trained myself to notice my alertness status that it stood out so dramatically. And it absolutely crushed my expectations. Isaac Newton formulated the law of universal gravitation after an apple fell on his head during a nap, which just comes to show that a break from the scientific method is often exactly what we need to spark revelation. Dave's case of serendipity was not much different. By letting the storm's gusts fill his sails, Dave was led to what long eluded him. He found the missing piece of this well-being puzzle in the form of butter tea. And if he knew that such a thing existed, after years of searching, there was no way he could just let it be a one-time experience. It was more, I want to feel like this all the time. And so when I, I came home, literally the first thing I did is I bought some butter and some tea and I tried to recreate it and it didn't work. It tasted like crap and I didn't get any energy from it. I just felt vaguely nauseous from it. So that was a fail. But I'm an engineer and I'm an experimentalist. And I said, all right, what are my variables here? I went to the Chinese tea store in Mountain View and I spent a couple hundred bucks on every kind of tea there was. And I tried all of those with the butter and nothing worked. So then I said, it's the butter. And I went to the Draeger's, the gourmet store there, and I bought 20 something kinds of butter and tried all of them. And the grass fed butter actually worked. It, it, it's like my brain just turned on. Within you know five, 10 minutes of drinking, like something just shifted. It, it's like you're in a car, you know, you, you accelerate and all of a sudden it, it downshifts the gear and you've got like power and throttle response. I'm like, all right, I got my brain back. <laughs> and then I said, all right, I had given up coffee for almost five years because it wasn't worth the pain, even though I'd been such a fan for a long time. I thought I was allergic to it. So when I got back from that trip, I went and I got a cup of coffee and I felt fine. I'm like, oh my God, I'm cured. You know, coffee's the elixir of the gods too. Uh, but then the next day I had a different cup of coffee and I felt like crap again. And I was like, wait a minute. It's not that I'm allergic to coffee. It's that different coffee does different things, which makes sense. So maybe different strains matter. So I went and I dug out my search engine. I did a lot of research on coffee. And I'm like, I can figure out how to get coffee that doesn't have mold in it because I know about toxic mold. Now I know this. I put two and two together. So now I could drink coffee that didn't make me crash. And I could drink my butter tea thing. I'm like, put the butter in the coffee. And I tried that. I'm like, holy crap. And then I started trying coconut milk and coconut oil. 
So I added MCT oil on a whim and blended that up and was like, oh my God, I have created something magical here and shared it with some friends and, and just kind of kept testing it. And that's how Bulletproof Coffee was first invented. Did you have any drive to share it with a larger group of people? Oh, yeah. I was like, this is all coming together, right? Like there's something important here, but how do I get the neuroscientists and the bodybuilders? So how do we bring all these people together to just talk about controlling and managing our systems? By the way, that's what you had to do to make cloud computing was control and manage many systems at once. It's the same thinking. So um, I wanted to come up with a name for it. And I'd been running that name. Is it a biohacking thing? Is it hacking your biology? Is it upgrading yourself? And so I had been struggling to find a word to build a movement that would allow me to bring Western and alternative medicine together, to bring neuroscience and Navy SEALs and astronauts and all that stuff around a uniting element. And, and that's what it was, was biohacking. Wait, you coined the term biohacking? It's in Webster's Dictionary. It was added as a new word in 2018 in my name's in the dictionary. Yeah. People call me the follower of biohacking. Really? I, I held the first biohacking conference. I wrote the first blog about it. That was the movement I started. I think I want to backtrack maybe a little bit and talk about posting the Bulletproof Coffee recipe online and what the reception was. It was actually probably my first, if not my second blog post on the blog. I posted it because it was my best stuff. Like, hey guys, here's how you can make Bulletproof coffee. And you've got to get the coffee right. Because if you use coffee that has toxins in it, it, it does a different thing to your body. And you need to add grass-fed butter, not regular butter, because it doesn't work. And you need to add MCT oil. And at the time, most MCT oil, and even to this day, a lot of it, you would use it and you'd get a cognitive boost, but then you'd get what, what in the early days of biohacking we would call disaster pants. <laughs> because it was it was pretty rough on the gut. And eventually, after I started saying, right, I'm gonna start selling MCT oil, I am going to figure this out. I created a source that was uh, triple distilled, kind of like a good vodka, doesn't give you a headache, but bad vodka does, same idea. So the MCT oil that I make is uh, a little bit more expensive uh, and it's sourced from coconuts, not from palm oil because of environmental concerns, um, but that stuff, worked better. I could feel it. And five years after launching that, a study came out of UC San Diego identifying that that one type of MCT oil that we used raised ketones way more than all the other guys. So you can feel the results even before you know the mechanism. And that's an important part of biohacking. Like, hey, did you get, did you get what you wanted? Do 10 things at once. And maybe only eight of them mattered, but it's okay. You got, you got the win. And it's the opposite of what we try to do with reductionist, especially Western medicine. Well, you have to test everything one at a time, which is kind of stupid. You couldn't invent bread in today's scientific environment because you would test the yeast in the oven, you test the water in the oven, and you test the flour in the oven and conclude there was no bread. So it's a system. You have to put everything that might work together. If that doesn't work, start pulling stuff out. Otherwise, you'll die. If you wanted to try every supplement that's on the market for just one month to see if it worked, you could do that for the rest of your life and not go through all of them. And you probably wouldn't get good results. People want to get stuff done and realize that you can't control for all variables. So control for as many as you can, which means add all the good stuff at one time. Can you touch a little bit more on what people actually thought and what went through the community. People thought it was ridiculous. 
First, the coffee people, oh, it was fantastic. One of the, the coffee geek blogs, they're like, it's impossible that Asprey has done what he says he's done to make mold-free coffee because he is not from the coffee industry. Therefore, he couldn't have done it. Hmm. And I'm like, I use lab testing techniques that you goofballs don't know about because I read the agricultural research and I contacted the labs and I figured out the steps in processing. By the way, all of this is in literature, but no one had ever put all the pieces together in the right order. And I said, so I absolutely have done it. And I can tell you, I test my coffee and it works. And I test other coffee and it doesn't work. So let people try the difference. And people were feeling the difference. And I have thousands of emails from people over the years saying, Dave, thank you. I gave up coffee for years because I thought I was allergic, but I can drink your coffee and, I, and I, I'm fine. I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm afraid of normal coffee. The butter thing was so outrageous. It's a very big, memorable experience. And it's the same thing bungee jumping. You look at the edge, you think about it, and throwing yourself off the edge is going against every survival instinct you have. And it's about you having control. Your body is telling you, you will die if you do that. But you know it's not true. And so it's about you deciding to overcome your body's desire to save itself from something that's not dangerous. It's a very big, memorable experience. The first time that someone 10 years ago would look at their blender with some coffee in there and they take a big slab of butter and they go, am I going to die? Because we've been <laughs> told that butter would kill us. And then you put it in there and you're like, oh man, and you hit blend. And, and there's apprehension and there's fear, right? And then you pour this frothy thing that looks like a latte into your cup and you go, and you kind of smell it. And then you drink it and you go, wait, it, it tastes like coffee. And then you drink it and then you actually feel different. That's the thing. Efficacy is really important. And you go, wait a minute, I just challenged death and I won, at least that's what it felt like. Mm. And so many people were saying, okay, I'm gonna do this. And so I, I had people from the paleo community, people from CrossFit community. And it turns out the Tibetans are actually very wise. We know a lot more now about how this works. So there's great wisdom in these old practices, but how would you know? Dave's approach to what he termed biohacking wasn't grounded in intuition or proven knowledge. While putting butter in your coffee can't compare to jumping off a cliff, Dave's point is that it goes against your first instinct, which was what led to so much disbelief in his products. But what works, works. Once you do make that leap of faith with bungee cords on, of course, you'll realize that instead of crashing on the ground, You've just experienced the rush of a lifetime. The lesson here is that sometimes it's important to trust the results and have faith that explanations will follow. This approach can be dangerous, but Dave trusted it enough to test it on several things. He wouldn't just stop at coffee. I wasn't planning to start a venture-backed company. I was going to start it as part of the nonprofit anti-aging group. But after three months of arguing with my board members over the name, like it wasn't going to be called Bulletproof, it was going to be called the name of the nonprofit. I just realized, you know what? Nonprofits have a hard time executing on stuff like this. And I realized there was too much bureaucracy for me to just go and share amazing content. So I'd had, you know, six or seven years of learning from anti-aging people every month hosting a meeting. I had this wealth of knowledge. I wanted to share it. So I finally just said, I'll just start my own blog. And I didn't build a list. I didn't do the entrepreneur thing. I didn't even put on a good blogging platform because I was focused on my day job and you know, putting bread on the table. And eventually I realized, you know, there's enough traction here. I probably can start a little you know, side hustle. I hired a, a couple of really young people just to do stuff that I knew how to do that I didn't have time to do. And shoestring did along until I said, I'm going to launch the coffee. And even that, I, 
I bootstrapped that. In fact, I bootstrapped the company until we were at 27 million in revenue. That's a good thing to do if you can pull it off. When did you know that it had enough traction? What were the indicators? For the first year or so, I just was relying on bad data to uh, delude myself into believing that lots of people were reading it. But what I did is I went out to Twitter and I worked, you know, a couple hours a night, like sharing this idea, you should try this, you know, just recommending it to people. But the thing that made Bulletproof work is that when people would try it, they're like, holy crap, like I haven't felt like this in a long time. Like that feeling I got in Tibet was real. People were doing it and it it took off first in Silicon Valley and with uh, entrepreneurs and software developers because no one had ever written a blog for us. Like, I actually care more about my brain than my abs. Because I wanted my brain to just like, like vibrate with energy. From there, it migrated to Wall Street. And same thing, bankers, they need to stay up all night long. They need to be able to focus. They need to be able to show up. The American Stock Exchange. Nerve center of American business and industry. And from there, it went straight to Hollywood, the music industry, because touring is just hell. And having 12 hour days as an actor or an actress where you have to look good, lose weight, and have a brain that works. And uh, musicians, when they tour, they just get beaten up on that. So pretty soon, there are big names in Hollywood and recording. And in the New York Times, Rick Rubin saying, I have bulletproof coffee for breakfast. And Ed Sheeran's talking about it on the red carpet. I had this thing yesterday called a bulletproof coffee. Have you ever had one of these? And Jimmy Fallon and Shailene Woodley are talking about it on the Fallon Show. Unsalted grass, fed butter, and brain octane. I was meant to teach you about this, and apparently you're already drinking it. Bulletproof coffee? Yeah. I didn't know any of those people. They just did it because they heard about it and they tried it and it worked. And it's like the opposite of kale. Like I'm eating kale because I know it's supposed to make me a better person, even though it tastes like crap. And you're just doing it on faith. I'm not asking anyone to do bulletproof on faith. I'm asking them to do bulletproof on results because it worked. They talked about it. That was really what did it. And I knew it was happening because I just saw the organic posts or people reach out, Dave, I tried the diet you outlined on your website. I lost 75 pounds in 75 days. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of possible. That's extreme. He used a, a hack on top of the normal bulletproof diet. But so many people reached out saying like tears in the rise kind of things like I got my brain back. Like I was struggling. I didn't want to tell anyone, but I can think again. Oh, and I got new pants. <laughs> it, it's that <laughs> order of priority, right? And so it, it's truly it became a grassroots thing. And along the way, I'm saying, look, what you're doing is biohacking. You're controlling the environment around you. In this case, the food and energy availability, the type of nutrients. And at the same time, I'm like, you need to be using light therapeutically. You need to be controlling your sleep. You need to be not over-exercising like I did for a long time. So all of the lifestyle elements that you do in combination is what led to the, the best things happening. And now, you know, when you look at the world of biohacking and you look at the original biohacking infographic that was kind of like a steampunk thing from 2010 or 2011 when I published it, that universe is exactly what we're all working on today. And there's companies that have started in neurostimulation and there's companies with circadian biology, including when I started, I was CTO of uh, Basis, one of the, the tracking companies from the risk that Intel bought for I think 100 million. And like that world happened. It happened in only 10 years from, hey, like let's create this thing called biohacking. The first biohacking conference had 100 people at a bar in San Francisco. And now we have 5,000 people at the biohacking conference I put on last weekend. And there's at least a million biohackers around the planet now. But it became a thing. Initially, it was just a blog post, right? How did you turn it into an actual product? I realized that for me, 
Finding coffee that wouldn't cause a crash was a big problem. Even though I knew about putting butter in it, I was still trying to source coffee. And what I found is I'd buy a $20 bag of coffee and I'd drink a cup, I'd lose my productivity for the rest of the day and I'd throw the coffee out. And I was in Denver doing a big keynote and I was like feeling zombified, a little bit of jet lag and whatever else. So I spent 50 bucks on a taxi ride pre-Uber cross town to the highest end coffee shop I could find. And I ordered the best looking coffee and I drank it. So I would, I could deliver a good keynote. Oh, and I put butter in the coffee, of course. And on the way to the convention center, I'm like, that was moldy coffee. Holy crap. Like I can, I don't even know what I said on stage. Like I was, that was really bad coffee and it tasted good, but it, it was bad mentally. And I was just like, I'm done. So that was when I said, I'm going to have to really identify lab testing. And I put up a post saying, hey, I've identified a source and a strain and I lab test it. The market size for this kind of clean coffee is zero. It's an industry category that doesn't exist for functional coffee. So I put it out there and I thought a hundred people would buy it. And it turns out a lot more people wanted it than you might expect. So that's how it happened. When you say a lot more people wanted it. We sold out right away, uh, just off social media, mostly Twitter at the time, a little bit of Facebook. And just, I was blogging every day, I'd put on a new blog post. And these were blog posts, stuff no one had heard of, stuff that's commonplace in the world of biohacking now. These were the first posts about these things. Like no one would put a infrared light or red light on your brain. What are you talking about? But <laughs> I'd had the first device ever conceived to do that. So they would come and then they, I think mostly maybe bought the coffee to disprove it, to see if it was real. And then I put up the MCT oil shortly thereafter because I got tired of buying MCT oil that would cause my throat to burn and cause me to you know, run to the bathroom. And I just kept putting up stuff to see if I wanted to do it. And eventually I got to the point where I'm running out of input. I don't, I don't have enough cash. So I went out to raise $3 million from friends and family just to buy inventory. And I went to the venture capital firm where I'd actually worked as an entrepreneur in residence, uh, Trinity Ventures on Sand Hill Road. I said, hey guys, I've been in enough of your partner meetings. You will never invest in Bulletproof because we're in five categories. And I know the recipe for startups that succeed. You make protein bars, okay? And then you sell to a protein bar company or you make coffee and you sell to a coffee company. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna make human performance products and I don't care about being acquired. That's not what I'm about. I'm about making stuff I can't buy. I said, so, but you should give me 50 grand, <laughs> you know, not from the firm, just like personally, just, you know, it, it'll be a, a good investment. I'll, I'll pay you back. You'll get interest or whatever. And they came back and said, how about $9 million? We think you're a real venture back company. And it turns out that Bulletproof is the largest investment Trinity has made in its history. What did that $9 million feel like? It's insane. I was not expecting it at all. I had this dream that someday food that was actually good for people would be available in 7-Eleven. And I'd be able to just go into a, you know, a, a convenience store anywhere when I was driving somewhere. And I wouldn't have to bring food that I wanted to eat because I could just buy it because we're going to change demand for quality food. And I sat down and I thought about that $9 million. I thought, can I reach a lot more people if I take this $9 million? Will I have to give up ownership of a percentage of my company to do that? Yes. Is it a good trade-off? Like, is it about me? Is it a financial decision or is it about making change happen? And I thought with $9 million, I can make change happen faster and bigger. I'm in. And that was the thought process behind it. And what's kind of ironic, about 12 weeks ago, we launched Bulletproof Coffee and Protein Bars in 200 7-Elevens. And to me, that was almost like a 
kind of an emotional thing to see us doing that because I'm like, that was my dream 10 years ago that I could go to a convenience store and I could go in there and get something besides the water that I wanted to eat, right? And uh, I'm seeing that, you know, that kind of demand continue because what we expect from our food as a species is shifting. And we've seen drops from large consumer packaged goods companies who make the sort of stuff like Campbell's soup was declining. In fact, when you're 20% decline in demands, but all the big food companies are like, wait a minute, people actually want healthy food? Like, we don't know how to do that. I feel like in some sense, that was just a, a bit of a milestone just to say, all right, we're, we've entered you know, the mainstream. We're in Walmart, you know, we're in Target, we're in Costco, we're in 7-Eleven, you know, it, it's happening. But I, I do have to say, you know, getting into Whole Foods, which was the first uh, major grocery we got into, was also a big moment. I can't believe this Whole Foods is carrying Bulletproof. Like, wow. So th those are things that are, it's all the emotional as an entrepreneur, but that $9 million enabled that to happen. Dave identified a huge shift in food culture and helped push it along. With a promise that biohacking was rearing its head in mainstream society, it's not a surprise that Dave decided to ride the wave of momentum. It's hard not to speculate as things progress even further. It, it's not even about health. I, I don't care about health. And I'm just going to ask you this, Samuel. How old are you? 23. 23. All right. Now, when you wake up in the morning, do you think more about getting laid or about being healthy? <laughs> uh, definitely getting laid. Thank you for your honest answer. You are like all humans who are 23. That's what we're supposed to be doing when we're 23. All right. So what we really want is not health. What we want is control. And we want to be able to burn the candle at both ends when we choose to. We want to be able to show up when we're tired. We want to be able to have energy at the end of the day to take care of our kids or our family or to push hard or to relax. And we want our body to do what we want it to do. And we want it to look a certain way. We want it to act a certain way. We want it to age a certain way. We want it to behave a certain way. And it's hard work and the administrative control interface for us to do that between our brain, our ego, and our biology is weak and poorly documented. What I want to do is I want to make it so that aging is a choice, so that degenerative disease is a choice. And we know what the causes are and we know what the easiest, most painless behaviors are that prevent those things. Or maybe your goal is to say, you know, I want to live fast and die young. We'll make it easiest and fastest for you to do that. I want to get swole. We'll make it easy and fast to do that, right? Whatever it is. And it's the same thing when you buy a computer. Did you want a laptop that was lightweight, had low battery life, but you could throw in your bag? Or did you want a gaming computer, right? You can make your body one of those things or somewhere in the middle, but you get to configure yourself. That's what I'm really after. What is the future of Bulletproof Labs and, and Bulletproof in general? Well, Bulletproof Labs became Upgrade Labs, which is a separate company from Bulletproof. And I am stepping in as CEO of that again. And I'm spending a lot of time on that this year on developing it. And it is now in two locations, one at the Beverly Hilton and one in Santa Monica. And this is the idea that I worked out 90 minutes a day for an hour and a half a day, and I didn't get the results I wanted. I believe that most people listening to us now are spending a huge amount of time exercising in a way that doesn't work at times that don't work, and they're doing it when they actually needed recovery more than they needed exercise. Because exercise is stress on the body. So is having a long commute, so is having a cold, so is eating bad food. So if you're already stressed, you don't need to pile more stress on, you actually need to pile more recovery on. 
So this is a place where you go and you walk in the door. We quantify where you are. We ask you about your goals. Did you want to put on muscle? Did you want to lose fat? Did you want to recover faster? Did you want more energy? Do you want your brain to work better? And we use an AI platform to help guide you through the set of technologies that we have for that. And to expand that, I'm opening one in Victoria, BC, underneath my recording studio and my offices that's opening in uh, another couple months. And what's going to be happening there is the next generation, the R&D side of that. So we can accelerate the AI and adding new things to the Upgrade Labs platform. And the goal there is you should be able to come in. At this point, we have university data that says I can replace a 45-minute cardio workout in seven minutes. I can replace a two-and-a-half-hour cardio workout in 45 minutes. And we can do things that are simply not possible with inputs from other nature, like rapidly changing atmospheric pressure on your body, running electrical currents over muscles to cause them to do things they wouldn't otherwise do, changing cognitive states. And the results are crazy. So the ROI on your time and your energy, you spend less energy and less time, you get more results. So what I want in the future is for there to be an upgrade lab in your city and you go there once or twice a week and you get more results than if you went to the gym six times a week and you get all that time back and you can use that time with your family, your friends, your community, or you can just watch Breaking Bad over and over and over if you want with the extra time, it's your time. The potential for what Upgrade Labs can achieve is exciting. Initially, I'll admit I, I was a bit skeptical on if control supersedes pure health in most people's minds, as Dave said. But then I thought, what am I doing when I reach for a cup of coffee in the evening to do some late night work? I'm not doing it in hopes of achieving better health. I'm looking for more control over my drowsy mind so I can get something finished. And if finding this control could be as logical and manageable as buying and customizing a laptop, why wouldn't you want to buy into Dave's vision for the future? What would you tell that 14-year-old, that 22-year-old that had all those health issues? What advice would you give that person? The first thing I would tell them is it's not your fault. Because when you have those things, you, especially when you're young, believe that you are your body. And it's not a lack of willpower. It's not weakness. It's not a moral problem. It's just a hardware problem or an environmental problem. And they're entirely within your control. You just need to know what to do. And that's the world we can create. And by the way, Samuel, if you're going to live to 180, you are going to think about how you are a steward of the earth very differently than if you think you're going to die when you're 80. You have to think long-term. We're going to run out of topsoil in 60 years. I live on an organic farm. I'm building topsoil right now. And this is going to be a huge thing that's going to happen. But you have to think like that if you have a long-term lifespan. And if you think you're going to just die before you really have to clean up your own mess, you don't take care of the earth. In the spirit of the open source internet, in which he started selling coffee shirts, Dave desires to acquire and disseminate knowledge freely and openly. He uses his mind, his body, his experiences as a starting point for discovery. And I think that exploration is something that we can all learn from. If we took it upon ourselves to experiment with our lives, we'd be a living lesson to those around us concerning the topic of those experiments. We don't necessarily need to trek to a Tibetan mountain to gain that wisdom. Wisdom can be obtained from something as simple as a conversation with a neighbor. That is, if we can experiment and apply the information within that conversation. Often, it's crisis that demands experimentation. It says something is not working in your life, and you need to figure out right now how to fix it. Doubting oneself does not fix those problems, especially since, as Dave said, the problems we face are not always our fault. And oftentimes, they're not even permanent. So when you encounter trouble, 
don't blame yourself and stagnate. Identify the root of the problem and then experiment towards a solution. And when you find the fix, share it. Share that piece of knowledge with the rest of the world so there might be a little less searching and a little more doing. Because that is how we can all become a little more resilient and a little more bulletproof. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zeng, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Dane, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruelkava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.